0: Why look at this subject? Why worry about this of the spirit? How many have ever listened to the tape we did called The House of David and The House of Saul? Yes, the charismatic movement, it began as a work of God, but very quickly degenerated into something mainly of the flesh. Because of experiential theology, because of compromise due to our absolutely unbiblical conception of unity and an unbiblical conception of love, the ideas of David Duplessis, which are totally unbiblical, if you compromise truth for the sake of love, absolutely unscriptural, that you can have the unity of the Spirit based on error, and so on. Experiential theology, people seeking a gift above the giver, seeking the manifestation of the Holy Spirit above the Spirit himself, The worship of worship, instead of the worship of the Lord. We were in Israel a couple of weeks ago, and I took people who came with us to two kinds of congregations. I wanted them to see the real Israel, and I wanted them to see the make-believe one. I wanted them to see what God is really doing in Israel, and I wanted them to see the nonsense that being told in England all the time, and in Wales all the time, God is doing in Israel. They have, for instance, four kinds of congregations in Israel, three indigenous and one foreign. The Hebrew, the Russian, and the Arabic-speaking ones are the indigenous ones. The English ones are the foreign ones. When you go to the Hebrew-speaking congregations, or the Russian ones, or the Arabic ones, you see the indigenous body of Christ. If you want to know what God's doing in Israel, talk to the local Christians. Unfortunately, 90% of the books written, the page circulated, the speakers you hear, are not from the indigenous body of Christ. They're usually somebody from the English-speaking body of Christ, who've been in Israel for years and haven't ever even learned the language, but they say they have some kind of a ministry. And so we took our people to meet with a group of Russian believers, and they heard testimonies of Russian believers who were saved in Russia, people under the Communists and under the Nazis. Look, this is the real body of Christ. This is what God is really doing in this country. Then we took them to the English meeting at Christ Church, where there was Taurus, the next Patriots, and all these people coming for the Feast of Tabernacles. They were not lifting up Jesus, they were lifting up Israel, and they were doing these Davidic dances. Now, I like Davidic dance, and I have no problem with worshipping a dance, because it's worship. What we saw was, instead of Jesus being lifted up, Israel being lifted up, and instead of the worship of the Lord, what people saw was the worship of worship. That is And <laughs> So this is the real body of Christ, and this is the make-believe one. But most of what you are hearing is coming from the make-believe one. ex people who will be there, and then they'll go back to England or to America or something like that. Don't speak the language, don't know the culture, don't evangelize, wouldn't know how to do it, etc. And it was the worship of worship. The charismatic movement is notorious for that. Not the worship of the Lord, but the worship of worship. There is no doxology without theology. There's no true worship without right doctrine. Just look at the choruses of half the hymns we sing today. Most of the words are not biblical. Most of the emphasis and themes are not biblical. Now, I have no problem with changing music, changing styles, changing these things change. But the spiritual content will always reflect the doctrinal content and vice versa. The doctrinal content will reflect the spiritual content. Hymns of of Sandy Crosby and Charles Wesley, they they had sound doctrine. Most of what Graham Tendrick writes is not. Most of it is just not biblical. It's based on triumphalist presupposition. I was a good musician. Very good musician. clever songwriter, talented composer, but the music, not good. Just bow water on these people. You go through the Vineyard Hymn Book, and of eight, one, one, out of 88 hymns, only three mention the cross of the blood. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this movement went wrong a long time ago. So first, it didn't bring the revival. But then people came along and said, well, we have to see what's wrong with this movement. We have to see why it hasn't brought the revival. I know. We have to restore what was wrong, what was left. We have to have a
1: restoration. They said. Well, look at the book of Acts. Chapter 1, verse 6.
0: Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? The only time the New Testament ever talks about or uses the phrase restoring the kingdom, it's not to the church. It's to Israel. The idea of restoring the kingdom to the church is an unbiblical concept. People, things like people like Roger Foster invented. Grant Kendrick invented it. You know, Bryn Jones invented it. Gerald Coates invented it. The followers of Arthur Wallace invented it. They just invented it for themselves. There's no biblical basis to it. Time doesn't even appear in the Bible. The only time restoring the kingdom appears is to Israel. The only one place it occurs and it's to do with Israel.
1: Of course, they would say is the church.
0: Another problem. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel.
1: Not with the Baptists not with kingdom now. So they said then, a half-truth. Remember,
0: half-truths are the most deadly of lies. Well, the reformers only restored the authority of Scripture and justification by faith. But then along came the Baptists
1: and they, they restored some of the things the reformers didn't. They restored things like Believers' baptism.
2: And then,
0: along came people like William Carey, and he was a Baptist, and he restored the idea of mission. Reformers didn't restore mission. The Baptists did that. They thought that, the, you know, Christianized Europe was the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So William Carey came along, and then Hudson Taylor and people like this, greater points, and they restored mission. And then the Brethren came along, and the brethren, they began restoring things like the priesthood of all believers. Even though the reformers nominally subscribed to it, the brethren began to say that every Christian is a minister and we're going to have a plurality of elders. And stuff. So the brethren restored something. They took it further. Well, that's a fair point. And then comes the Pentecostal movement. And they restored things like spirit baptism and gifts of the spirit in the early 1900s. So the Holy Spirit is always trying to restore That which was lost after the apostolic church. Now, there is a truth in that. The Holy Spirit is trying to restore things that were lost. However, to say it's a progression like that is an oversimplification. There were always people who held to believers' baptism. There were always people who held to gifts of the Spirit. If you have the Anabaptists during the Reformation, there was never a time when such people didn't exist. They may not have been predominated, but they always were around. But to restore something, you have to restore something that existed to begin with. You cannot restore that which never existed. So the first attempt then to find out what went wrong with the charismatic movement and why it hasn't been been revival, came the followers of Arthur Wallace, whose earlier books were quite good. And they said, here's the key. This is the issue. I know what went wrong with the charismatic movement. It didn't go far enough. We have to restore the things that haven't been restored yet. So they turn to the book of Ephesians,
1: chapter 4, and there it begins. Verse 11.
0: He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, and some as teachers.
1: The pyramid. Apostles. Prophets, pastors, Or something like this. Teachers. Evangelists. That needs to be restored, they said.
0: Then we'll have revival. <laughs> then we'll see why the charismatic movement didn't work. It's because we forgot about Ephesians 4. So the emphasis then goes from the charismatic gifts to these
1: ministry gifts in Ephesians. We have to restore this. What they're actually restoring is not Ephesians chapter 4. What they're actually restoring is this. Can you read that? Nico Lationism. Turn to Revelation, please. Chapter 2, verse 6. Yes, you do
0: have this. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We call suppression laity the people.
1: Nicolationism. The modern colloquialism is usually heavy shepherding. But let's look at the beginning. The Bible teaches a priesthood of all believers, but a ministry of all believers. You can make the following distinction. Not everybody has the same ministry. That's fine. Secondly, not everybody is called to be a leader. That's fine. Thirdly, not everybody is called to full-time ministry. That's fine. You can
0: say those who God has called to function in leadership and those he has not. You can say those who is called to full-time service and those he hasn't. And you can say, some have this ministry, some have that. You can make those distinctions. But as soon as you create
1: a clergy class, What you were doing is going back under the law. Remember, before Satan tried to paganize the church with Constantine, he tried to Judaize it in Galatians. So instead of a priesthood of
0: all believers, you wind up with a Levitical priesthood, a clergy class again, you understand? This is a Roman Catholic concept, it's a Greek Orthodox concept. There was a heresy in the early church called Nicolaitanism. But what you see in the restoration movement is not a restoration of Ephesians by any means. It is a restoration of Nicolaitanism. You look at these churches and the attitude, how
1: dare you question us? I'm God's anointed. I'm the cho- how dare you? <laughs> Who do you think you ought to question us? That's an attitude.
0: Now with this, of course, we're not going into it, we've talked about it enough, comes in Gnosticism. It's not what the Bible says it's important, it's what we say about it.
1: Let's begin with Apostles. Once again, please turn with me to Ephesians 4. He gave some as apostles. The
0: restoration model says the apostle is the top of the pyramid. That's Prince Jones. That's General Coates. He's the apostle.
1: Under him comes the prophet. That's Paul Kane. That's Bob Jones who was caught in immorality. What a scene. Flip a hill on those guys.
0: They told us, John Wimber, listen, there's something terribly wrong with Bob Jones. This was about five or six months before he was caught in immorality. Wimber said, You know that's why we only let him for leaders.
2: <laughs> this
1: is crazy. Apostles. So they are taking the idea of the apostle as the top. He becomes an autocrat. He becomes
0: the dictator. He becomes the one with virtually the Nazis. Let's look at the different kinds of apostles
1: in the Bible. We are told in Hebrews
0: something about the Lord Jesus in Hebrews chapter 3, 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, as the word calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The only one who is at the top of the pyramid scripturally is Jesus himself. He
1: is the apostle with the definite article. All other apostolic authority must must derive from the Lord Jesus. Once you begin putting people on the top of the pyramid instead of Jesus, not only are you going into Nicolaitanism, you're beginning to toy around with the spirit of Antichrist in place of Christ. Turn with me, please, to First Corinthians chapter one. Verse 12. Paul's polemic against party spirit. Now you'll notice one thing about the restoration movement. They set out to say, we're not going to be a denomination. Denominations are unscriptural. Did you ever notice that group who set out to say, we're not going to be a denomination the most? Turn out to be the most denominationalistic of everybody?
0: Denominationalism is a euphemism for what the Bible calls the sin of party spirit. It's a euphemism for what the Bible calls the sin
1: of party spirit, indeed of the flesh. Denominations are one thing. Denominationalism is another. A denomination may be a good servant.
0: the minute it becomes a master, throw it out the window. If it's a practical way to get like-minded Christians of like-minded fellowships cooperating together in the work of the Lord, of getting the gospel out, of helping the poor, of mission, of of rich churches helping poor ones and established ones, planting new ones, if it's a way to get like-minded congregations working together in the work of Jesus, by all means, have it as a servant. Once it becomes hierarchical, it's no
1: longer what it was meant to be. It's no longer a servant, it's become a master, an unbiblical master. These things
0: are fine as servants, and the Lord leads when they're practical, but if you're not willing to throw the denomination out the window in a minute, when it's no longer serving its purpose or becoming too cumbersome, then you have a problem. You have a loyalty to something that is not biblical.
1: I've been in Elam my whole life. I know it's not the Elam of George Jeffries. I know it's not the Elam I grew up in. But I've been in it my whole life. I can't leave my denomination now. Where is the denomination in the Bible? Where is it? There's the body of Christ corporately and there's your local congregation, where is a denomination? Here's what Paul speaks against it. This I mean, each one of you is saying, I am of the Polis, I am of the Jesus, and I am of Christ. These things are fine as servants. The moment they become masters, get rid of them, they are not a biblical institution. It's like a Bible college. It's not biblical, but it's not unbiblical. There's nothing wrong with it. It's okay as a servant, but once you make it a master, it's wrong. Where in the Bible does it say that a minister has to have a theological education in the academic sense? It doesn't. Paul had one, Peter did not, but they were both apostles. Now, a leader must know doctrine. He must know the word of God. A pastor must be able to look down the scripture. But that's not to say he needs an academic knowledge of theology. Again, Bible college is a good servant. But once it becomes a master, not got a problem. When people take unbiblical institutions and make them the paradigm, they're going wrong. They're putting themselves in a harness that it's not easy. It's easy to get into these things. It's easy to get in. But it's not easy to get out. It's easy to get in. But once you get in, like Britain and Europe, it's easy to get into these things. (laughs) Once you're in, it's not so easy to get out. These are politics on it. I am of Paul. I am of the Apostles. I am of Caesar. The first kind of apostle we looked at was Hebrews 3 1. Jesus, the apostle. He's totally unique. Then we have three other kinds of apostles here. Let's begin with Caesar first, Peter. Peter is one of the original Twelve. Peter, as one of the original twelve, met certain criteria that the other apostles did not. Paul also saw the Lord. Paul also was part of the Lord. But when the apostles wanted a replacement for Judas, they had to have someone who was around from the time of the baptism of John. John is the pivotal figure. John is the last figure of the old covenant and the first of the new. The law and prophets of peace under John. John is the last figure of the old covenant. He's also the first of the new, not Jesus. He's the harbinger of Christ. He teaches something about the spirit of Elijah to come. Paul did not meet that criteria. Additionally, in Revelation chapter 4, he sees the 24 elders, almost certainly, the 12 patriarchs of Israel, the sons of Jacob, and the 12 apostles. An eternally fixed number, which Paul was not a member. Now, Paul had the same authority as the other apostles, but he was still not in their status. He said so. I'm the least. I persecuted the church. Yet, very mysteriously, like 1 Corinthians 11, we talked about it the other night, he speaks about the Last Supper as if he was there. For well, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that that night in which Jesus was betrayed, as if he was one of his sons. So the twelve apostles, they're totally unique. Then comes the case of Paul. Paul met most of the criteria of the twelve. He was taught by Jesus personally, he saw Jesus personally, and he was used by the Holy Spirit to write much of the New Testament. But he's a unique case. The early church believed that the prophecy to describe of Benjamin in Genesis 49 is a prophecy about Paul. He was a ravenous wolf, the way Paul was a persecutor of the church and so on. Then it says Apollos. Apollos never saw Jesus as far as we know, it was not taught by him personally. But he planted churches. So we have at least four, at least Four, possibly five, categories of apostles. First is Jesus Himself. He's the one who's the top of the pyramid, not several Coach. Secondly, you have the twelve apostles. Then you have the unique case of Paul, possibly Barnabas. They have seen Jesus. Oh, I'm mean, amazed in one of the 70s or around the time. And then you have the case of Apollos. Apostles like Peter, James, John, and Paul do not exist anymore. They cannot exist anymore. Does apostolic authority still exist? Yes. But what was apostolic authority? When the apostles used apostolic authority, it was inevitably related to matters of doctrine, not administration. The so most poor would say, bring the papers I left, I'm going to send this one to you, or whatever. But it was never, we have to do this, we have to do that. <laughs> It was not heavy shepherd When the apostles used their authority to decrease it, it was to do with doctrine, wasn't it? Does apostolic authority still exist? Yes, it does. In the writings of the apostles.
0: This is apostolic authority. The apostolic authority that Peter and Paul and John and James had is here in the writings of Peter, Paul, James, and John. Here it is.
1: This is apostolic authority. It is Deeply doctrinal, not administrative. What kind of apostle exists today? The kind of Paul was. Not one who writes the New Testament, not one who taught Jesus personally, in the sense that the original twelve did or was taught by him personally. The kinds that exist today. Our church-planting missionaries. Greek word, apostle, one who was sent Hebrew, shaliach. Church-planting missionaries. Those are the kinds of apostles that exist today. However, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sent them out in air. Acts chapter 13. The Holy Spirit stirs them up to send out church planting missionaries. There were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers and it names them. And then it said while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting the Holy Spirit said set out for me Barnabas and Saul." The biblical pattern of church planting apostolic authority is plural. It's not one man saying, I'm the apostle, the way the restoration movement does. Who's your apostle? Oh, I'm with Green Jones. Oh, I'm on with the Teddy Virgo. It's the... not biblical. This ministry gift was exercised in plurality. What these people are trying to restore is a version of apostolic authority that belongs to Christ alone. Only he is the top of the pyramid. You understand? And as a result, they begin making their own dances. This is what Over and over and over, Jesus warns of signs of the last days. Matthew 24, Luke 21, and the main
0: thing he warns about is deception. As I tell people, if you asked me 10, 12 years ago why I believed it was the last days, if you asked me that in 1985 instead of 1995, I would have said the kinds of things that Barry Smith said,
1: or Hal Lindsey said. The Jews are returning to Israel, the reconfederation of the nations in the Roman Empire, the globalization of the world economy, the ecumenical movement, and world, one world religion, hence the one world religion, I would have said things like that. I still believe all those things, probably more so now than I did ten years ago. However, the main reason I believe we're in the last days now is because of the magnitude of the deception in the church. It's the magnitude of the deception in the church that points to Jesus' coming more than any other single sign. People follow stuff like Rodney Brown and John honest God knows what they want to The very signs that Jesus gave for so the elect would not be deceived, these people are saying enough signs of the the very things that Jesus gave for one of us in Matthew 24, that we would not be surprised, taken, but that that day would not overtake us like the thief in the night. That they should not overtake us like the peace in the night. Because watch these signs, don't be taken unaware. we have got people, that God wouldn't use people saying these things are not signs. people putting themselves in the place he's and making himself a singular apostle. The only person in the New Testament who was the singular apostle is Christ himself. Other apostolic authority was always plural. Look at Acts 15. The apostles met in conjunction with others. The safety and abundance of that. So the restoration movement is trying to restore a version of apostolic authority that's not biblical. You cannot restore something else. Then you can't something that never existed. This entire movement is committed centrally to restoring things that never existed. First of all, this triumphalism the idea that they're going to conquer the whole world for Christ before he comes, Speaking of the teachings of zero that the rapture of a fantasy and a myth. committed to restoring things that never existed, and institutions that never existed. The next thing they're trying to restore that never existed is their very prophetic authority. We're warned over and over and over in the last days about false prophets. Let's look at Deuteronomy 18.
0: Verse 20. But the prophet who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he shall speak in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Notice, it doesn't matter if he does it by presumption or by a demon.
1: He's still a false prophet of every You may say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about. By the definition of the word of God, Paul Cain is a false prophet. John Winter is a false prophet. This joiner is a false prophet. They predicted things in the name of Jesus Christ that didn't happen. Time and time and time again. Those men are false prophets. It's possible the elect will be deceived. So the vineyard comes along and says, well, there's a difference between an Old Testament prophet and a New Testament prophet. John Wanderer said we prophesy in part. That means we can be part right and part wrong. That's what he doing. We don't stone them like that to death, to death anymore, but the sin is no less serious. If you don't have an at This movement is committed to restoring things which never existed. That's the second phase of why the charismatic movement has been here 30 years and up for revival. It didn't come at first because of ecumenism, compromise, experiential theology, hyper-emotionalism, and the rest of it. not willing to upset the foundation. You see, if you're going to remove, remove the church, you have to tear up what's wrong in the foundation. If they only wanted a cosmetic restructure and need to side with the old foundation. Including this. Our clergy Class. It begins with the mono episcopacy of Ignatius of Antioch. Well, we know these things are not typical, but we want to keep them anyway. So you try to renew something on the basis of the reason it needs to be renewed. Instead of uprooting the things that are causing the church to fail. And we are it in the things which are biblical, we say, no, that's our tradition, or we've built our empire on it, or we're committed to it because we've always done it that way. We only want a superficial renewal. When God renews, he tears up a corroded foundation and towards a new ones. Understand. When God renews something, if there's something in the foundation that's unbiblical, we'll tear it up. can't put new wine in old wineskins. The old wineskins are going to begin to be broken, and stretched and remade, or else have to get rid of Wesley tried to put new wine in old wineskins, and he found out it didn't work he didn't want to leave the church, but he found out it didn't work. Remember, the early Jewish Christians never wanted to leave the synagogue, but they wouldn't compromise, so they were thrown out. Wesley never wanted to leave the Church of England, but he wouldn't compromise, and so he was forced out. Luther, for all of his mistakes, never wanted to leave the Roman Catholic Church, but so he wouldn't compromise, so he was thrown out. They tried to restore from it. Forget about the idea of restoring something from within when its foundations are wrong. Once something is foundationally wrong, like the Roman Catholic Church, there is no possible way to restore it. Long before the Reformation, you had people like Francis of Assisi and Thomas the Tempest and the common life brethren, who were many people who tried to change the Roman Catholic generation. They all People who to in the generation, they it. Says Jeremiah 51, Babylon, and So, you have this movement then, and it says, well, the charismatic movement didn't go far enough, we have to go further. Further, west, further, further away from the Bible. So now the Restoration Movement has been around since the late 70s, and that hasn't brought revival either. But then, what do they come up with next? Toronto, Montanism, holiness. Let's look at Luke 11. I've had ministers, and ministers' wives tell me, we know this is of God because it says in Luke 11, suppose one of you, fathers, is asked by his son for a fish, he'll not give him a snake instead of a fish, really, or if he asks for an egg, he'll not give him a scorpion. And that becomes their proof. We ask God for a fish, he's going to give us a scorpion, you can't be right, our father wouldn't do that, this must be a sin. That becomes their proof. In the name of God, read the next verse. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father give you, the Holy Spirit, to those who ask Him? Matthew's verse of gifts again. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. You get the Holy Spirit two ways. The Holy Spirit indwells you when you're born again. And the Holy Spirit is outpoured when you're baptized in the Spirit, assuming the two don't happen contemporaneously, which they sometimes do. These people are already saved, so it can't be the indwelling of the Spirit. And they're already charismatic from Pentecostals, so it can't be the outpouring of the Spirit. Not only that, because they are charismatic from Pentecostals, it can't be the gift of the Spirit. So when you look at Matthew's version, in light of Luke, Matthew 7, verse 11, if you being able to know how to give good gifts to your children, what gifts? There's no such gift as barking like a dog. Or cooking like a chicken, Or rolling on the floor like somebody who's having an epileptic fit. That's not a gift. There's no such gift as levity. There's no such gift as a pastor standing against the wall screaming, imitating a woman in labor, and another pastor comes along the midwife, putting his hands between his legs to catch the baby coming out because they're giving birth to a church. There's no such gift as the nine o'clock service in Chepfield. It's not a gift. There's no such gift as twisted women rolling on the floor having sexual orgasms in church saying, it's God, I've got it on video. The all no such is as a pastor, a pastor indicating a king. The only place you see any basis for this is what? Bar worship on Mount Bar worship. They couldn't make the fire fall, so they got more and more crazy. Or when God's judgment came on Nebuchadnezzar, that's the only biblical basis. What's this text talk about giving gifts? The Holy Spirit. But these people already claim to have the Holy Spirit, so the text does not even apply to what they're talking about. Understand? It does not even apply to what they're talking about. They're just taking the verse out of all context and trying to make it say something it doesn't, and that becomes their truth. If you want to handle the Bible that way, you may as well join the Jehovah's Witnesses. They do the same thing. Look at the end of Second Peter. Verse 14 of 2 Peter 3. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him, and keep, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of the Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. We also, in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Once again, Paul was educated theologically. Peter was not. God used Paul to do things he couldn't use Peter to do because Paul was educated. That's true. But it does not mean that Peter couldn't be an apostle because he didn't have Paul's credentials. Does it? On the other hand, it's fair to say God, redeems the whole person, if somebody, if God has called somebody to have a theological education, the it's not unreasonable. We see it here that God can use them to do things but others can't to do things. Paul, Peter said that. It's better if Paul explains these things. He knows better. He can do it better. And whereas Paul says, let Apollos explain it. When you read the Bible carefully, you it poses a question. Did Apollos understand the scriptures better than Paul? So, you the Bible, think about it. It you too complicated for to Paul? He's from the Polish. He's in the Polish Now look. Also in his letters, speaking in them, of these things in verse 16, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they also do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, Let's being carried away by the error of unprincipled men who fall from your steadfastness. When people persist in doing this stuff, when people persist in wrong doctrine as leaders, the Word of God says they are unprincipled men. Not me. God says these are unprincipled men. Cheryl Coates is an unprincipled man, tell him I said Untaught and unstable. Most of the restorationists are untaught. Most of them are untaught. Certainly uneducated men, a lot of them, but untaught. They don't know anything. Not a clue. They don't know doctrine, they do not even taught it. Uncaught and unstable. For spirit. I look at the ones teaching the biggest error, who's have done the craziest things. They're the men who are the most uncaught and unstable. David Shearman, somebody who is uncaught and unstable. Because the anointing of the Spirit comes leaning down a person of in Untaught and unstable. They distort the scriptures to their own destruction. So this movement hasn't worked and now after three years Toronto has not brought revival unprincipled men do you think Kenneth Copeland has any principles a man who says that Satan got the victory on the cross that Jesus Christ became a satanic being in hell and had to be born again in hell a man who teaches another gospel an old lady on pension dying of, of, who loved the Lord a whole life is going to die now the only thing she has left is the faith in Jesus and he's going to come along and say, no, you don't even have that. Put in the pocket. The way that they prey on the uneducated, in God's economy, the educated people are supposed to look out for the uneducated, the rich are supposed to look out for the poor. You go to the meetings of these money people. you go to the meetings of the civillo and these guys, look how many of the people who come are people who are immigrants From poor countries in Asia and Africa and the Caribbean. Who are unfamiliar with Western advertising and media psychology and manipulation, they're rocking the poor. They're looking the poor. You go to the meetings of these money people. You go to the meetings of the Corillo and these guys. Look how many of the people who come are people who are immigrants from poor countries in Asia and Africa and the Caribbean. Who are unfamiliar with Western advertising and media psychology and manipulation, they're rocking the poor. They're in the poor. So, tell many single parents who don't have anything, who've gotten saved, they're going to these meetings, giving these guys money. What are they doing? They're distorting your to deal with. They're unprincipled doing Not only that, when you look at men like Copeland and dating, they are unforced. They themselves don't know about this. They can't debate anybody. I feel has a heavy spirit. This this of all the stuff they write against Dave Hunt, and against Hank Hanegraaff and against Dan McCall, Do you ever notice something? They never argue with what they say. Do you ever notice that? I'd like to see one of these clowns stand up and challenge what Dave Hunt says, or what Hank Hanegraaff says, or what Dave Wilkerson says. I'd like to see one of these clowns stand up and challenge what they say. They What? Oh, like myself, what did the Sanhedrin do when they couldn't refute what Jesus said? You attacked them for saying it. And if you can't find the reason, you invent it. It he was a prayer meeting in Egypt in July. They were praying against me They were to praying against me, and they had a the prophecy that I would be adultery within three months. If I don't have an affair within the next 11 days, somebody's going to get stoned. (laughs) It's crazy, isn't it? Now, let's look at the authentic. Let's look at you, apostle. true church planted. Who has the gift of being an apostle? Someone sent out to plant the church, Acts 13. The Spirit said, Set out for me, Paul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Saul. One, you send out your best not your word. One of the problems with the restoration movement is they send out the works. Not only that, they were sent out by themselves, not by a church. Paul was told from the beginning, right from the day he was saved, that he was going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Not until God prepared him for some years in Arabia, and till such time as his calling was confirmed through the body, that ministry comes to fruition. That will be true of any ministry calling God gives you. You may know about it way ahead of time, years ahead of time, but it will not come into fruition until the Holy Spirit confirms it through the body. Watch out for people who are wild cards. They don't want to be in fellowship with others or have any kind of commitment. We have to be careful of words like covering because the restoration is when you see the mouthpiece and use it in the way that's not written. The idea of fellowship is being committed to other Christians. I found that there would be a thing. I that Somebody's not accountable, they have a the problem. Uh, I have meetings with Ron Zari will say, What about this? And Valerie will say, What about that? And Dean will say, What about this? And my wife will say, What about this? Everybody. I have to answer to the question. If somebody's not accountable, they have a the problem. These other guys say, Touch not my anointed. If I'm the anointed, don't touch me. I can do what I want. Well, Paul was God's anointed. He had to give account, didn't he, when he came to Jerusalem? Well. Even though he was right, he had to give account. Just that to give account doesn't mean you're wrong. It doesn't mean you have to be accountable. When you send somebody out to plant the church, send the best. However, when they commissioned these guys for the ministry and laid hands on them, the only thing they were doing is confirming, affirming, and bearing witness to what the Holy Spirit had already said. Only God can ordain a minister. You put somebody in a theological cemetery seminary, set a Bible college, you can lay hands on him. That doesn't make him a minister. Only God can ordain a minister. When a church commission somebody to the ministry, they are only affirming and bearing witness what the Holy Spirit has already done. Here we're talking about the ministry of an apostle. How do you find out what your ministry is? What is your gift? Well, first of all is the word. Provocos, the doctrinal word of God, is the basis by which we test everything else. The next way God will speak to you is through Rhema, a personal word. However, Rema is not doctrine. Prima must be supported at logo. If you are praying for direction, and you read a verse, and, 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 and the Holy Spirit quickens the passage to you, and you believe God is calling you to go be a missionary in some foreign country, and the Holy Spirit impresses upon you Acts 13, and you believe that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, Well, you share it with the leaders in your church, and you ask them to pray about it. You first take the logos of Acts 13. The Spirit said, set out. There were apostles and there were prophets and teachers. A corporate leadership. And Paul already knew he'd been prepared. So whatever rhema God has given you, whatever personal word God has given you through that passage, must be examined in light of the logos, what is doctrinally stated, understand? It could be with anything. Should I marry Philip, or should I marry Darcy? and you're praying and the Lord brings you to the Song of Solomon? Might be loved at normal. Okay, God can speak to you through a rainbow like that. But you better examine the rhema in light of the logos. Philip, the husband is the head of the wife; the Christ is the head of the church. Wait a minute! I love Philip, but he's only been saved six months. How can how can I see the protection and the quality of Jesus to a man saved six months? I love him now; i love him six years. Even a chance to go. The rhema may be authentic, but you have to test the raiment in light of the logos. So Understand? Well, it's the same thing. When you are looking for a ministry calling, if God gives you a Rhema, you test the the personal word by the logo. Test by what's oftenly stated. Never take a rhema or some kind of personal word that God has spoken to me, and that's it. It has to be tested by what's doctrinally stated, by the logo. Secondly, Providence. Circumstances. Now the devil will try to counterfeit providence. But when it's really God's providence, you'll we'll know. Because if you're really seeking Jesus, if you're really seeking him, even though the devil might try to open doors that are not of God, Jesus is the one who opens no and no man closes and closes and no man opens. When you're seeking God's will for your ministry or for anything, you don't have to worry about what it is. You have to worry about doing His will for the Holy Spirit to show you what it is. We can get so anxious and try to do God's work for us. The struggle for us is to be willing to do what He wants us to do. It's up to Him to make it clear what that is. You understand? If you really want to please Jesus, you do His will. The Holy Spirit will say yes. Providence. Doors opening and closing. God opens the door for something. But He closes it. Now the devil might open his door. to get to go on their own one. But don't worry. One way or another, the Lord will close those doors. you really take it. Providence. then, there's reason. The Bible speaks a considerable amount about sanctified human reason. However, do not lean on your own understanding. Human reason, human intellect, is like human emotion. They're properties of the soul. Once again, they are very good, Servants, but very dangerous masters. Emotions, intellect, human reason are very good servants, but very dangerous masters. Be careful of people who think with their emotions. They have some kind of emotional, sentimental attraction to something, and they interpret it as the burden or the calling of God. A calling of God does not have anything to do with burden. Burden is something God gives you after you take the calling. It's not something you have to have to get the calling. We'll come back to burden shortly. But think of it like this. Paul's desire, his burden was for his own people, Israel. Yet God made him an apostle to the Gentiles. Then he got the burden for the Gentiles, didn't he? Jonah had no desire whatsoever to go to Nineveh. None. He didn't have a burden for the place. I don't have a burden to go to Kenya. I don't have a burden being an evangelist in the council state of, of Birmingham. I just don't have a burden. Witnesses broke out it. You might not have a burden, but that doesn't mean you don't have a calling. We walk by faith and obedience. Accept the calling, then God will give you the burden. You see this in Israel all the time. People come to Israel and think they have some kind of a calling. But what they have is an infatuation. So you see how hard it is to live there and be a believer there, and some actually submit it. A burden will follow a calling. A burden will not necessarily be dedication. You may have a burden for something, but that doesn't mean it's God will for you to go there. Maybe he's go for you to get into in a successory trap or, or something like this. Maybe may be interested in having you financially support this into his act and engage in a successory trap or something. If it doesn't mean he wants to go there. He's something different. An apostle who has elements of pastoral ministry, elements of teaching ministry, but he will not necessarily be either one. I knew a man in New York City who was an apostle, a church planting ministry. And he planted a church in the middle of Manhattan in a bad area with drug addicts and homeless people and prostitutes, and you name it his dad. This man really was a church planter. He made a mistake, though. Once the church was established and planted, he should have went to Philadelphia and planted another one with somewhere. He decided to become a pastor. He stuck around, he walked. The church began to disintegrate. Everything. everything he worked to do. It began to affect his marriage and his relationship with other people, and it took a toll on him spiritually and emotionally. And he wound up lost. Him. He stuck around too long. An apostle doesn't stick around too long. An apostle plants a church and to such point as it can function under the leadership of others, without it. Although he may still continue in a ministry of exhortation and outside doctor oversight to it. you understand? sense, after Paul planted a church, he continued to exhort those churches and visit them, and he continued to have doctoral oversight for what he planted. If that's it, then he goes plant another one. An apostle can get things going, but once they get going, he should get going. Not all of apostles. All of these ministries again, once somebody accepts them, will be characterized by burden. An evangelist will have the burden of Jesus for the lost understand. A burden for the lost. An evangelist will actually carry the burden of Christ for the lost. He'll seem to think of everything in terms of those who are going to hell. A pastor will have the burden of Christ for the sheep. He will seem to interpret everything as his priority In light of the welfare of Christians, understand, to have a shepherd's heart, he will have the burden of Christ for the people. A prophet will have the burden of Christ for that nation, for that people that he is prophesying to. Remember Zechariah, the burden of the Lord concerning Israel? prophet of Britain will have the burden of Christ for this nation. A prophet to the church, like David Wilkerson, will have a burden of Christ for the church. A prophet will carry the burden that has to be. However, the burden is the characteristic. It's not the indicator of the falling. When you accept the calling, then the Lord will give you the burden if you don't have it. Apostles. Apostles have to be people who can lay a doctrinal foundation that will last after they leave, that the right principles of doctrine will be in place, that the place won't go nuts when he walks out the door. The danger is that if he doesn't do that, the fellowship or church he plants becomes built on his gifts instead of on the Lord. The real test is what happens after we leave. We leave an infrastructure and a doctrinal basis in place that is not reliant on And in time, will that church be planted, be able to plant another one without it Let's talk about the next prophet. If and that ministry is so misunderstood. Because prophets wrote the Old Testament and Apostles the New, yes, there is some sense of difference between old and New Testament prophets. But there are certainly New Testament prophets like Agabus. In the book of Acts, they knew the salmon was coming to Jerusalem most critically, they knew what would happen to Paul, there were prophets in Antioch, and there are prophets today. The first and foremost sign of a prophet. Daniel chapter 9. Verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the book the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem. What was Daniel doing? God showed Daniel visions of the future. There are things happening in the Middle East today. This day, this very hour. There's prophecies happening in the Middle East. There's there's things happening in the Middle East fulfilling what Daniel saw. Right now. He saw what would happen with the Maccabees. He saw what would happen with the rise and fall of the Roman Empire and the rise and fall of the the, the immediate Persian Empire, the rise and fall of the Greek Empire, he saw these things. He foresaw history in detail all the way up to our present day. He foresaw the history of Israel and the Jews. He foresaw the coming of Jesus. The rule would come before the Second Temple would be destroyed. Daniel foresaw things from Greek Galactica. Higher critical presupposition, the liberals are baffled by Daniel. They say he couldn't have written it because he couldn't have been so exact. It proves it had to be written post facto because nobody could know the truth in that okay. What was he doing that made God trust him with the word? Studying the scripture. He wanted to know what God already said about the future before God was going to show him anymore. A real prophet will first and foremost be somebody thoroughly immersed in the word of God. If they are not, God will never trust them with prophetic revelation, particularly not predictive revelation. Because you'll have no basis to know what God the spirit of your own mind, or possibly even an alien spirit. That's why you see these crazy guys like Paul Kane and Rick Joy running around. Look at Second Peter, chapter two. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. Do you notice how it uses false prophets and false teachers interchangeably? Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. First, it uses... Both teachers and both prophets interchangeably. Why? If somebody's doctrines are going to be wrong, their prophecies are going to be wrong. You understand? If somebody's doctrines are wrong, their prophecies will be wrong. Why are John Wimber's prophecies false? Because his doctrine is false. Why does Paul King get it wrong when he predicts things? Because his doctrines are wrong. But then it even goes on and says they will secretly introduce destructive heresy. That Greek word there is a very important word. You don't need to know a lot of Greek to understand the Bible's basic truth, but there are certain things that are helpful to know. One is this word. Para sovzusin. as in paramedic or paramilitary means what? Next to, it, right? Paralegal, power paramedic. Power Powerful lucid. They lay truth next to error. How do they introduce destructive heresies? They lay truth next to error. There is always real cheese in the rat trap. Well, Kenneth Pagans says a lot of good things, and Kenneth Copeland say a lot of true things. Sure, they do. They parasol Zeus. It. They masquerade what they're really trying to introduce. Look at the devil. What did he do? He distorted Scripture when he tempted Jesus, didn't he? But then it says, "What happens? Even denying the Master who bought them." These people who follow Kenyon, who this maniac William D. Ortega tries to defend, or when Lewis defends Ortega, says, Kenyon, Copeland, Hagen, all of them, that Satan got the victory on the cross. When the Lord Jesus died on the cross, the devil got the victory. God's biggest failure is Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he he became a satanic being in hell, a born nature with Lucifer. He was tortured in hell as a demonic being and had to be born again. Oakland teaches that Satan got the victory. What does it say? They will introduce destructive heresy secretly, even denying the Master who bought them. When you say Satan got the victory on the cross, you deny the Master, don't you? And yet Rodney Brown becomes and, and he acknowledges is taken in his book and gets his hands laid on by by Copen Rather, than just, this is everything that Copeland is out for. False prophets and false teachers go together. True prophets and true teachers go together. Now, let's look at Jeremiah 23. It talks all about false prophets. Verse 28, both of the verse 25, I had a dream, I had a dream. How wrong is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesied falsely? Even these prophets, the deception of their own hearts? These men have deceived themselves, it says, who intend to make my people forget my name. Open, they Just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal. You heard the tape, the golden Cat about the Baal worship? When you begin worshiping the true gods in an unbiblical way, an alien spirit gets in. That was the spirit of Baal. Baal is the Hebrew word for husband. Baal, Israel's true Baal was to be Yahweh. They thought they were worshipping the true Baal on Mount Carmel. Because they, they began worshipping the true Baal in an unbiblical way. They wound up worshipping the false Baal because he was the same God. That's what Toronto was, an alien spirit the do. He wound up, begin worshipping the true God in an unbiblical way, and a false God counterfeited That's what Baal worship him. Israel's true Baal was Yahweh. He was the true husband. Baal means husband. An and Baal got in. The prophet who had a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain? The straw is the word. No, the straw is, I have a word for you. I have a word for you. The grain is the word. People who go around with words of knowledge and words of wisdom will be people who have a Will be people who have God. look at it. I remember David Wilkerson, he told me that I was in New York and he said the stock market of the world would crash in October 87. It happened. Four and a half years before the Gulf War, and he told me it was going to happen. Steve Weider, we talked about the destruction of the Soviet Empire would have been unthinkable. It happened. I've seen the true prophets. I've seen the guys who got it right. They got it right because they had the grain. John Winter and Paul Kane and Rick to get it wrong because they had the dream. I'm against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. You ever notice how they speak in sense? The latest that the Toronto thing, first, they begin taking take the that to Soiva. She's the tabernacle out of context in Ezekiel 47 and John 7. First the water's up to here, then it's up to here, then it's up to here. Well, so far, it's still only ankle deep the same as it was three years ago. One's the water, it hasn't risen. They're talking a lot of garbage. This guy's never around him and the of what is going to rise, it's not going to rise. It's really what the thing is talking about. They're just taking it out of context. They steal the words from each other. I'm against those who have prophesied false dreams. Doesn't mean it's not true dreams. And let my people astray with their falsehood and reckless boasting. These people have pride problems, don't they? are here to go, I have a word for you, or I have a word for you. There's a woman in the far east who's absolutely nuts. For her own good is set into a mental institution. Was so awesome. Crazy. They let my people stay with their falsehood and reckless ghosthood. Yet I did not send them or command them. Nor did they furnish this people the slightest benefit. I was very close and Ian guilty with the earthquake in New Zealand that had Or the Kansas City prophets with the revival and everything. They don't furnish the people one benefit. However, before God begins dealing with the false prophets, look at verse 1 of this passage. All to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep. He first gets angry at the pastors who allow the sheep to follow the false prophets. Understand, the real problem is not Kenneth Hagin and Kenneth Copeland and Rodney Brown and John Arnott. The real problem are pastors who know better, who allow their books and tapes to be sold in the back of their church. The shepherds who don't protect the sheep entirely. We're going to talk about this Lord willingly in Walpole Hall when we do our Good and I Love Lord is my shepherd. Good shepherds and bad shepherds. We want to do it in the east of England at Fortry, and we want to do it in the west at Walpole. Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23 in two parts. Verse by verse in the Hebrew text. A true prophet will be somebody who is first and foremost a man or woman of the word. They are people who are not afraid to be unpopular and castigated even by their brethren. The same way as William D. Ortiga and Stephen Strang and Wynne Lewis will attack men like Ty Panagraph and, uh, and uh, Dave Hunt. That's the same way the Levites went after Jeremiah. You understand? It's the same way as the Sanhedrin went after the Apostles. It's not the unsafe persecutors, it's the so called brethren. Persecution of prophets, by nature, prophets are persecuted people. By nature, most prophets in the scriptures have been persecuted people their persecution has been at the hands of their own time. Their persecution has been at the hands of their own time. When Isaiah and Jeremiah, when they prophesied against the kings of Babylon, nothing happened. When they told the truth about the kings of Israel and Judah that they understood, prophets are people who are willing or who are capable. Loneliness of being betrayed. A prophet will be somebody who wants to speak but is unable to. Until God opens his mouth and he won't want to speak, but he has to. Ezekiel chapter 3. Verse 26, Moreover, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth, so that you will be dumb and cannot be a man who rebukes them, for they are a rebellious house. God himself makes the prophet's tongue stick to the roof of his mouth. But when God opens his mouth, something happens. Verse 14, For the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went away and in the range of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. And I came to the exiles who lived next to the river of Chibar at Tel Aviv, and I sat there seven days, where they were living, causing consternation among them. Prophets caused consternation among God's people. Notice God lifts him up. In Ezekiel chapter 8. Once again, in verse 1, the hand of the Lord comes upon him, and in verse 3, he stretched out the form of a hand, and caught me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and brought me to the visions of God, to Jerusalem. He was taken up from the earth into the sky, and he fell down. A true prophet will always see things from God's perspective, not man's. A true prophet will always see things from God's perspective, not from man's. Remember when the temple was designed, it was described from the inside going out, not from the outside going in. Humanly, we go from the out and work our way in. Well, God is the opposite. It's from in, out. We look up, God looks down. A true prophet will have to see things from the divine perspective, not the human. Until he's lifted up by the lock of his hair and shown, he can't prophesy. Be careful of people who go around giving words, 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 predictions to the flesh. Sometimes, something worse. Some of the prophets would go years without prophesying. Only when God picked them up by the lock of the hair, that now you see how I see it? Maybe you knew the stuff was wrong already. You knew it was wrong, but I wouldn't let you speak. But now you're really seeing When a prophetic message comes, it's not just a It's something that shocks you. It's what God doing it, not the prophet. Prophecy is not simply the foretelling; it is the foretelling, the foretelling. Although it will have a predictive element in it, which will prove to it's a false prophecy, God raises up prophetic voices at bad times particularly before judgment comes. God raises up prophetic voices at bad times. Contrary to what people are saying today, the prophets of the Bible always called people back to what was established. They never tried to police people in a new direction. Every prophet in the Bible called people back to the ancient past. Don't move the ancient landmarks. So we're not running around saying, I'm going to do a new thing and all this stuff. The prophet says, See, the new thing is going to be judgment. If you repent and go back to the ancient path, maybe the judgment won't fall. Every prophet of the Bible does not go around predicting new things. They runs around telling people that the prophet's already happened. New things may happen, and prophets may predict them, but it will never. Be based on any departure from the ancient landmarks. The first message of a prophet is always do not move the ancient handlock. Don't move it. Today, we've got four cave of people like this who throw the ancient landmarks out to do that. Prophets will have the gift of prophecy, the charismatic gift. And prophets will have the word of wisdom. They'll have the gift of prophecy. They'll also have the gift of the word of wisdom. In the Greek text of Ephesians 4 and 11, Ephesians 4 verse 11, it says pastors, but there's a link with pastors and teachers. Why? Let's look, please, at Timothy, 1st Timothy. (laughs) 1, verse 7. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. It is for sure that people who go around not knowing anything thinking themselves to be teachers, will have this characteristic. They'll be making confident assertions about things they don't know what they're talking about. The classic example in this country, because he's got the biggest mouth, is David Shearman. A man makes confident assertions from scripture, yelling, I don't care, i sure, of it." Valerie says he sounds like a market trader. I'm not telling you one for a pound. I'm not telling you two for a pound. I'm not telling you three for a pound. I'm telling you four for a pound. And you take what he says, and it's ridiculous. I heard him doing this once on a tape. There's nothing you can do to be blessed. Nothing you are blessed in Jesus. We have all the blessings. Hallelujah. And the people are clapping. Yeah, we have all the blessings. Well, how come the Greek word mechatios, occurs 44 times in the New Testament alone, and it says no less than 44 times the things we can do to be blessed? There's a blessing in anybody who reads the book of Revelation. Beginning with the Beatitudes, it's a blessing on each of the Beatitudes. There's no less than 44 times the New Testament says it can be blessed. I'm not telling you one for a pound! I'm not telling you two for a pound! What does it say? Wanting to be teachers, they run around making confident assertions about things that they don't even know what they are talking about. 1 Timothy chapter 3. An overseer must be able to teach. If somebody is not able to accurately teach the Word of God doctrinally, he has no business being a pastor.